Let me start out just by finishing up the, the introduction to thermodynamics, um, and then Tim will start to talk about statistical mechanics. Um, so, let's see. So I think last time, um, uh, I had... Uh, we, we had shown that um, the Clausius formulation of the second law of thermodynamics, that is, uh, the formulation which stipulates that, uh, that there can be no transformation whose sole thermodynamic effect, um, whose net thermodynamic effect, is the transfer of a certain quantity of heat from uh, from a cooler body to a hotter body. Um, last time we showed that that entails, for example, that the time reverse of a chair sliding along a frictional surface and slowing down to a stop couldn't occur. Okay, because if such things could occur, um, they could be exploited um, in certain kinds of clever setups to affect, um, uh, affect a transformation whose net effect is the transfer of a certain amount of heat from a cooler body to a hotter body without any thermodynamic effects on the rest of the world. Um, let, me just, let, let me just give one other example. There are multitudes of these. Um, and by the way, there's... Um, um, I, the, by far the best book I've ever seen about thermodynamics, if people want an introduction to thermodynamics, is a book by Fermi, by the famous physicist Enrico Fermi, um, called Thermodynamics. Um, it's really, really good um, if you feel you want to, uh, if you feel you want to see some more about about thermodynamics. He doesn't talk at all, as I remember about the statistical mechanical underpinnings of thermodynamics. He just treats thermodynamics as an autonomous science, but it's a very clear, very beautiful little book. Most of this is stolen from there. Um, so, here's one more example. Um, um, consider... So... I have a box with a wall that can be slid in and out. Um, and I start off the box with uh, uh, gas on this side and nothing on the other side. Um, slide the wall out. The gas expands to fill the whole box. We want to show from the Clausius formulation, we want to show that this kind of thing happening in reverse would violate Clausius's formulation of the second law of thermodynamics. On the face of it, that's a surprise. This doesn't involve transfer of any kind of heat between anything and anything else, um, so on and so forth. So once again, you have to be clever in the, in the sort of engineering way that these guys were clever, and think of something. Um, here's what you think of. Suppose, contrary to what we're trying to prove, okay, um, 
it was possible for uh, the, the, the reverse of this process was possible, okay? That is, it's possible for uh, gas to contract from uniformly filling a container like this to all being on one side in precisely such a way that I can then insert a piston, uh, excuse me, insert a wall and trap it all on that side. Yes? Suppose that such a thing were possible. Okay. So we start out with a gas uniformly spread throughout the container. I'm not sure I have this right. Yes, I think I do. Good. We start out with a gas uniformly spread throughout this container. And suppose there's another gas next to it. Uniformly spread throughout this container. Suppose, moreover, that this gas, the temperature of this gas is initially higher than the temperature of this gas. So they're both sitting on a table. Okay? Good. Then, um, um, the time reverse of this gas spreading out to fill its container occurs. So it spontaneously all bunches up in here in such a way as to allow me to insert a wall here, trapping all of the, uh, trapping all of the gas molecules on one side. Okay? Then I do the following. I take out this wall, I take out this wall, um, I put a piston here, and a piston here, and they're attached to each other by a rod. Okay. Nothing we've said so far stands in the way of the pressure here being higher than the pressure here, even though the temperature here is stipulated to be higher than the temperature here. Let that be the case. This will then push on this. Suppose the pressure differential is just such that it pushes on that until it gets out to its original volume, okay? Then this one is pushed in, say, to here. We slide this wall out, allow it to re-expand without changing its temperature um, back to its original back to its original volume. Um, we have a process whose net effect was to transfer a given quantity of heat from a cooler body to a hotter body without any other net thermodynamic changes in the state of the rest of the world. Everybody with me here? Okay. So, if Clausius's formulation is true, um, the spontaneous collection of a gas into one corner of the container that it's in is ruled out as well. Everybody with me? And these guys were incredibly clever, and they thought of millions of examples like this, and they gradually made it plausible that um, that a formulation like Clausius's formulation, in fact, um, um, you know, um, uh, differentiates correctly between all of the all of those processes, all of those thermodynamic processes which are reversible and those which aren't. Okay, that that single narrow-looking formulation, in fact, has inside of it. Um, the entirety of the sort of time directedness of ordinary thermodynamic processes. Everybody with me? Um, I want to tell you about two other formulations. Um, there's a formulation due to Kelvin, um, um, which, which instead of taking the temperature transfer event as the sort of basic one from which to infer everything else, 
takes something like the sliding chair event as basic. That is, Kelvin's formulation um, says that <coughs> um, it's impossible um, to uh, extract a certain amount of heat from a, from a body whose temperature is uniform throughout and convert it entirely into mechanical work. Okay? That's what would be going on in the case of the sliding chair. Yes? That is, we take the time reverse of something like this. What happens is if we, if we leave everything alone for a while after the chair stops sliding, the floor is at uniform temperature. What happens is um, um, a certain amount of heat is extracted from the floor and converted entirely into work that this moving chair can then do, say, by pressing on the piston of a gas or, or something like that. Okay. Um, so there's a formulation due to Clausius that uh, procedures like that are impossible. We've already shown that the Kelvin formulation entails the Clausius formulation. Okay? That's what the chair example showed. Um, it can also be shown with a bit more work that I won't drag you through here that the Clausius formulation entails the Kelvin formulation. Uh, excuse me, that the Kelvin formulation entails the Clausius form. Did I get them backwards last time? They entail each other. Um, <clears throat> good. And, uh, and let me give you a third formulation, which is the one that plays the central role in modern discussions of uh, time irreversibility. Um, this is the formulation of the second law involving entropy. Okay? Um, <coughs> um, so let me tell you a little bit on a thermodynamic level, and then, of course, there's going to be a task of producing an interpretation of this quantity on a statistical mechanical level. But let me tell you on a purely thermodynamical level what entropy is. Um, so consider two distinct thermodynamic states of a certain system. So here's the space of, you know, thermodynamic parameters, pressure, temperature, volume, stuff like that, okay? Um, or pressure, temperature, volume as a function of position in space, blah, blah, blah. Here are two thermodynamic states of a certain system, call them A and B, okay? Um, um, there will be all sorts of thermodynamical roots, that is, roots that can be mapped out in this space to get from A to B or to get from B to A. Typically, some of those roots will be reversible processes. Others will be irreversible processes. Some will involve relinquishing heat to some other system. Others will involve absorbing heat from another system. Still others will involve absorbing heat at some points and relinquishing it at other points and doing work and not doing work and all kinds of stuff. Um, it's not hard to prove, although it's harder than I'm gonna, than anything I'm gonna embark on at the moment, but it's not hard to prove and there's a very beautiful proof of it in Fermi's book, um, that the Clausius and Kelvin formulations entail the following. Suppose you take some root some, some route through the space of thermodynamic parameters from A to B, 
Okay. Break the root up into short sections over the course of each individual one of which the temperature is is basically constant. Okay. This may this may involve breaking it up into into an infinite number of segments. Um, in which case, the sums we're going to write down are going to turn into integrals. So be it. Okay. Um, break it up into sections over which the temperature is constant. Okay. Consider the following sum. The sum over each of these steps. Okay. Of the amount of heat the system absorbs in the course of that step divided by its temperature at that step. Everybody understand the quantity that's been defined here? Okay. Um, it's easy to show um, that, first of all, if you take any closed, if you take this sum over any closed root in, in the space of thermodynamic parameters, any that is, any closed root which is reversible throughout, Okay, it's easy to show that this sum will be zero. Okay, <laughs> mathematically equivalent statement. Take any two reversible roots between two thermodynamic states A and B. Okay, this sum evaluated over this root will be equal to the sum evaluated over that root. Everybody with me? For rever excuse me, for rever and it's very important that these are reversible roots. Yes. For any reversible root, for any two reversible roots between two distinct thermodynamic states A and B, this sum evaluated over this reversible root, uh, over the first reversible root, will be equal to the sum evaluated over the second reversible root. Uh, We're dividing the amount of heat absorbed by the system during that step maybe zero, maybe negative, so on and so forth, by the temperature of the system at that step. Remember, we're breaking this up into units over which the temperature is constant. Okay? If the temperature is changing all the time, there'll have to be an infinite number of these units, and this sum won't be a sum, it'll be an integral. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, so, you can show from both the Clausius and the Kelvin formulations of the second law, that this sum evaluated over any reversible root between A and B will be equal to this sum evaluated over any other reversible root from A and B. That's just the same thing as showing that the sum will be zero over any closed reversible root from A to A. Everybody with me here? Okay. Um, good. Given that that's the case, Okay. If we define some state, some particular state, R as our reference state, okay, we can assign a unique entropy to any other thermodynamic state that that system can be in, just by defining the entropy of that system as this sum evaluated over a reversible root um, from the reference state to the state in question. Which reversible root? Doesn't matter. That's just the point. Everybody with me here? Good. And now, there's a claim which is supposed to be equivalent both 
to the uh, uh, <coughs> to the Clausius formulation and the Kelvin formulation um, of the second law that the entropy of an isolated thermodynamic system can only either stay the same in the course of a transformation or rise. It can't go down. Okay. Um, and in particular, over the course of a reversible transformation, the entropy stays the same. Over the course of, uh, of the total isolated system, over the course of an irreversible transformation, the total entropy of the isolated system uh, will rise. Okay? Let's take some simple examples to see how this works. Um, good. <coughs> Here's an irreversible transformation, a standard irreversible transformation. I have a box of gas. Uh, I have a removable wall. The gas is initially confined to this section of the container. I slide the wall out. The gas spreads to fill up the whole container. This is an irreversible transformation. Given that it's a reversible, an irreversible transformation, if the entropy law um, I just rehearsed is true, it had better be the case that the entropy of the final state here is higher than the entropy of the initial state. Somebody prove that the entropy of the final state is higher than the entropy of the initial state. How do you do it? How do you evaluate the entropy difference between two states? Yeah? Can you do like the multiplicity of the number? No, that's the statistical, that's not the thermodynamic way to do it. I just gave a definition of entropy. I never use the word like multiplicity. Evaluate that sum. Evaluate that sum over what uh, well, good. I'm trouble figuring out the path because the path has to be reversible. Good. Good. The path we, exactly right. The path we described here isn't reversible. So the first thing we've got to do is find some other route from the initial state to the final state, which is reversible. It doesn't matter which one we imagine, because we have a proof that the, that the evaluation of that sum over any reversible route will be the same. All we've got to do is imagine some reversible way of getting from A to B, and then evaluate that sum over that route. Excellent. Okay. What's a reversible route from getting from there to there? Well, here's something we could do. Uh, uh, we could start out with the gas in this corner, but make this a piston rather than a wall that comes out this way, and slowly draw it out. Okay. Everybody with me? Um, um, if we just draw the thing out to there, that won't get us to the final state. Why not? What will be wrong? What will be the difference between the state I get by slowly drawing this out and the state I get by allowing this to spread? Good. In this case, the temperature will be lower. Okay. In this case, the temperature of the initial state and the final state are the same. Okay, so we've got to add something. Let's put here a large heat reservoir 
at fixed temperature T, which is the initial temperature of this. Okay? This is so large compared to this that, that you know, the temperature of this doesn't, in a non-negligible way, go down over the course of this expansion. Okay? Can I just pause? Because it took a little while for that to come out. Do people see why the temperature is going to go down? There's some work being done, right? Right. Because right. you, you're allowing this piston to come out slowly. You, you could take that and do some work with that. Right. This and, is the, this is, so that, that is, this is exactly the, the piston pushing on the ball example that, that we were talking about last time. Yes? Good. So, draw this out slowly while it's attached to this. Okay. This is going to maintain its temperature at T, but it's going to maintain it by means of a heat flow from here to here. Okay. So there will be some non-zero amount of heat that this absorbs. Okay. So this sum will only have one step because the temperature is is uh, is the same throughout. Okay. Um, so um, um, the, this so this entropy is higher than this entropy by the amount dQ over T. Okay. Where dQ is the total amount of heat this absorbs in order to maintain the same temperature. Everybody with me here? Yes? So, in, and this is the result we wanted, okay? The entropy of the spread out gas is higher than the entropy of the, of the more confined gas, okay? Um, so the entropy here rises. That's the sign according to this formulation of the second law of an irreversible transformation if it's an isolated system. That's exactly what we have. Everybody with me here? Note, okay, that since this is a reversible transformation, it had better be the case that the entropy of the total isolated system doesn't change. Okay? And indeed it doesn't. Okay? Because the entropy of this goes down by exactly the amount that the entropy of this rises. Everybody with me? Yes? Okay. Um, is that a question? Is that a hand? It's, it's a very fuzzy question. Yeah. Um, I think I understand kind of the sort of the physics slash engineering assumptions here. I'm not right. sure if you're going to make, you know, doing this to make some strong conclusions about what's going on. I, I, I'm a little uncomfortable about that heat bath, you know, which is part of the system now and has a negligible temperature change. Right. I'm, I'm a little worried about that um, assumption here. In other words, you mean the assumption that the temperature change is negligible? Yeah. I mean... Um, it's really not going to affect. Yeah, it's not going to affect this. The, the dQ gained by this is has to be exactly equal to the dQ lost by that. Right. And even if you imagine this T, right? So we're thinking of T as the temperature well, of the What is the definition of T here? In other words. T, T is the initial temperature of the gas. No, it's not a statistical. It's the initial temperature of the gas, and it's the initial temperature of the heat bath. Right. right. We're, we're doing now, here. We're not doing statistical mechanics so here. So we're not thinking we're, of this T as a statistical No, not at all. We're thinking of where systems like this have T values as a function of position within them. Okay? This is a system which is stipulated to have the same T value throughout. Okay. It has a constant T value throughout its volume, and it does a gas. Okay. I'm sorry. You know what? 
Um, it's unfortunate that I that I represented the gas as a collection of particles here. That's not the way we're supposed to be thinking of it at the moment. It's a continuous entity. It's something. It's, a, it's mush. Okay. Um, um, that's what it is. Okay. We're not supposed to be thinking at the moment about the molecular constituents of these gases. Right. But but you you are right. Technically, in the course of this. <laughs> The temperature of this right. will go down, but but it can go down arbitrarily, an really arbitrarily is. small amount That's by right. making this larger and larger and larger relative to that. And the calculation, what you're saying is, well, in this calculation, this becomes t minus epsilon. Right. But as far as the calculation goes, I can make that deviation as small as I like, so it doesn't affect anything that's happening. I mean, if you you could pose a different problem, you could pose a different way. Well, actually, you could. Um, yeah, if T was really going down, then it wouldn't maintain it at the same temperature. Um, yeah, it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, this needs to be negligibly small compared to this. So two ways of talking um, <coughs> out the entropy along an irreversible change that we have. There's the statistical one, which we're not even here. Right. And there's one here where you're embedding it in a larger system for which you have a reversible process. Right. So let, 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 let's see. Here's the here, here's the defi the definition of the entropy difference for any given system. Okay, um, between two possible thermodynamic states of that system is dQ over T evaluated over a reversible root. Okay, that reversible root, of course, can include other systems. Can entail that the system is not isolated over that reversible root, but but. But, you know, that, that's, we, we brought in all this as a way of evaluating the entropy difference between the two states of this, in fact, the beginning and end states of this system, which was, in fact, isolated. But okay. is there an intrinsic definition that doesn't need to appeal to a larger system? No, not in, not in the thermodynamic case. No, in the statistical mechanical case, there will be. Okay. But, no, not in the thermodynamic case. In the thermodynamic case, by definition, you evaluate this over a reversible root between the initial state and the final state. In general, that reversible root is going to involve interactions with systems other than the one whose entropy you want to calculate. And it's going to involve imagining that system not to be thermally isolated and, and so on and so forth. So no, on the thermodynamic level, there isn't, as it were, a purely intrinsic um, um, you know, a, a definition of the entropy that makes no reference. I mean, let me put it, you know, once you have this definition for a given system, okay, you can associate a definite entropy with every set of, you know, pressure, volume, temperature uh, uh, parameters, okay? Um, um, so in that sense, it does become intrinsic, but it's parasitic on this notion of a reversible root. Okay, that's the fundamental definition. Well, let me just, I mean, I'm not, it's, it's definable for all the equilibrium states. Uh, no, it's definable, no, I don't, I don't see why you say that. <coughs> it's, it's, uh, well, it, it's hard to, how do you give me a reversible path whose endpoint is not an equilibrium state? Well, I mean, I mean, here. I, I, you know, it depends, it depends whether I'm supposed to be imagining this at the instant before the world has been pulled out or at the instant after the world has been pulled out. Right, but that's, well, I, I mean, maybe, I'm not sure if there's any reason for us to have this discussion. Right. But, but there is, 
a way of thinking about this, that the entropy is well defined for equilibrium states in this, in this uh, uh, regime by exactly the way you gave it. But it's, of course, what's important, the way you define the entropy, is that it has to be a state which is an endpoint of a reversible, yeah, right, of a reversible. But I don't see why, if you if you ask me for a state of saying where the pressure here, right, is kind of, I mean, initially your picture is you have a constant pressure here and zero pressure here, right, and you take the thing out and you let it equilibrate, right, and you again end up with a constant pressure, right, here. right. Now someone might say, well, in the in the interim, right, there's a point where say there's kind of high pressure here and yeah. lower and it's tailing off, yeah, not in equilibrium, yeah. Couldn't, but can I start out with a lot of little cells and then the walls between them evaporate? I don't know. That's not a, not going to be a reversible process. No, no, no. But there might be a reversible. But just, you tell, yeah, tell me what it would look like. I don't know. But just as this isn't a reversible process. Okay. I have look. Right, surely there clearly was a reversible process that got you to the end state whose entropy you're trying to define. Yeah. You just gave it to us. Yeah, 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 yeah. But and that end state was also an equilibrium. Suppose I didn't have two two different pressures as a function of position, but three. Yeah. Okay. So I have two walls. Yes. Yeah. You, you think it's going to be impossible to discover a reversible route from there to the uniform one? Yeah, I don't see how. I mean, really? all you just said, I don't see how. You can't have the little cells no. and then take take the walls out at the end because then the last bit is not reversible. No, 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 no. But you take the thing up. You you section the thing. You take it apart. You allow this to interact with one heat bit. You allow the other one to interact with another heat. I don't see why it's going to be impossible. Why? What? So you're saying it's a non-equilibrium state at the end. Well, wait. No. In this case, we're going to an equilibrium. No, 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 no. I'm saying. Oh, at the end. end state is a non-equilibrium. Oh, the end state, state is a non-equilibrium. The end state is a non-equilibrium. Uh, uh. Let it's not think. clear you can have a reversible process. No, that may end be right. state is not an equilibrium state. That might be right. What that means is that in this regime, yes. if you ask me to define the, for the entropy of a non-equilibrium state, it's not clear how you would do well, it. That might be right. And that's why there's an issue about extending all this to non-equilibrium situations. Now, can you go down? That's a good question. Let me think about it. Um, um, let me think about it. I don't know what to say. Good, but you wanted to go on and say something from there. Or no, no, I, I mean, it, it, well, it's, it's relevant because at the end of the day, we're looking at cosmology, and all of cosmology is a non-equilibrium situation. Right. So one ought to mark the points where the transition from dealing just with equilibrium states to non-equilibrium states, you, you need to think through. Let's take one more example, um, just to get a feel for how these things work. Our initial state is we have two boxes of gas. Let's say they're of equal mass um, and the same kind of gas. Um, but one is at a lower temperature, T1, and the other is at a higher temperature, T2, okay, um, initially. And we bring them into thermal contact with one another and allow them to equilibrate at a temperature that will be T1, the average of the two, 
Okay. Uh, so they meet in the middle. Um, good. This is irreversible. The entropy of the final state had better be higher than the entropy of the initial state. Someone proved that that's true. <coughs> what do we got to do? Again. I'm sorry, I went from place. What was the question? Um, um, the initial state is... This, where T1 is less than T2, the final state is that they equilibrate at the, at the intermediate temperature T. This is clearly an irreversible process. Therefore, if the entropy formulation of the second law that I just gave is true, it had better be the case that the entropy of the final state is higher than the entropy of the initial state. Somebody show that the entropy of the final state is, as, as it ought to be, higher than the entropy of the initial state. Or once again, if you don't want to show the whole thing, just repeat the mantra of what it is that we have to do. Okay? Well, we have to, we have to find, we have to find a reversible path between the initial state and the final state. Um, yeah, you have a suggestion? Can you make the wall a piston and let that do the work that it Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, here's an easy, here's an easier way. Just, um, um, attach, attach each of them to a heat bath at, uh, at temperature T. Okay, the average temperature. Okay? Um, I, that is, isolate them thermally from one another, attach each of them to a heat bath. Okay, good. So, um, um, it's easy to see that the amount of heat this one will absorb is equal to the amount of heat this one will relinquish, okay? Um, so why is it obvious that the, that the sum of their two entropies rises? The entropy of this one is going to go down, okay? The entropy of this one is going to go up. <coughs> what is it that makes it obvious that the sum of their two entropies will rise? That is, what it, what does it make it obvious that this one goes up more than this one goes down? T1 is always, well, T1 is always less than T2, so throughout the process, this is at a lower temperature. This is always approaching T from underneath. This is always approaching T from above, okay? So the denominator here will always be smaller than the denominator there. The total, en the total entropy increase of this will be less than the total entropy decrease of that. Um, so the total entropy of the combined system goes up, as it ought to. And similarly, in the case of the reversible process, if we include the entropies of the two heat reservoirs, then um, the total entropy of that four-body system will remain the same. Everybody with me? Um, good. <coughs> yeah. I'm a little bit unclear why... Um, when we're wandering about getting from state A to state B, um, I would have thought that it was part of the description of state A that those are in thermal contact, the two boxes. Um, why, why, is, why can we just come up with these alternate situations where we break them apart? And no. Carry in big um, um, no, that's not part of the thermodynamic state. That's part of what we call the gross constraints. That is, that's part of the total macro state, okay? Um, that's not part of what we're calling the thermodynamic state, okay? Which is just the thermodynamic parameters, the values of the thermodynamic parameters, temperature, 
pressure, so on and so forth. There's a function of position within within each of the systems. There, 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 there is something a little. Cons- I mean, I'm not sure what she said about the way you describe that. Yeah. Um, you, you said, well, take it heat bath at heat. Right. And then attach it to these guys. A big heat bath. Yeah, but why yeah. think that that's reversible? <laughs> what? Why are you oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wrong, wrong. I'm sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. They're just attached to each other. You could argue. Bad, 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 bad. Absolutely wrong. Um, um, good. I'm sorry. All wrong. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> um, you need a piston. <laughs> you do need pistons. I think you make the wall. Thing. You always need pistons. Right. Uh, so here's what you do. So you have this one at T1. You have this one at T2. Um, good. So what do you need to do? You need to... Um, oh, here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to press this one in do work on it until its temperature reaches, uh, uh, what do you need to do? You need to rate it well. I was going to say, then let it irreversibly spin. The man, maybe I had a look at what you need to do. <laughs> what do you need to do? You just made the wall between them a piston, right? I don't think that'll work. I don't think, oh, hold on a second. Let, let, let me remind myself what I said you need to do. Um, Here's a reversible path from the initial state to the final one. The gas at T1 is put in thermal contact with a gas in a piston at temperature T1, and the gas at T2 is put in thermal contact with a gas in a piston at temperature T2. Oh, I see what you do. Okay. I see what you do. Okay. Here's what you do. Put this in thermal contact with a gas at T1 also, but which has a piston in it. Okay. Slowly, reversibly push the piston in. Okay? That raises the temperature of this and also the temperature of this. Okay? To T. Okay? Similarly, connect this one with a gas at T2. Slowly pull the piston out. Okay? That reversibly takes this and consequently this down to temperature T. Okay? Good. Um, now, this absorbs a certain quantity of heat. This relinquishes the same quantity of heat. Okay? But the absorbing and relinquishing is done at different temperatures. Okay? Um, um, uh, and specifically, um, this absorbing is always done at a lower temperature than this relinquishing is done, because both of them approach T from different sides. Okay? So... Um, so the denominator of dQ over T here um, is always smaller than the denominator of dQ over T here. Okay. So the entropy of this is going to rise by more than the entropy of this goes down. Good. Thank you. Um, everybody with me? Good. Good. Uh, that was stupid. Um, okay. Um, just one more thing, which we've already mentioned. Um, um, it functions as something like a basic principle of thermodynamics. 
that relative to any fixed set of gross constraints, okay, there is a unique maximal entropy state for any given thermodynamic system. Okay. Um, once the system is at this state, there's no way for its entropy to increase further, compatible with the gross constraints being what they are. Consequently, it will engage in no further spontaneous, irreversible sorts of transitions. Um, once it's there, it'll stay there unless we somehow alter the gross constraints to which it's subject. Such states are called equilibrium states. Okay? And once again, one is always thinking in the context of standard thermodynamics that relative to each set of gross constraints, there is a unique equilibrium state. So, for example, relative to the set of gross constraints which specifies the volume of a container and the amount of gas in the container and the energy of the gas and so on and so forth, there'll be an equilibrium condition of the gas uniformly dispersed throughout the container, blah, 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 blah. Temperatures equilibrated, so on and so forth. Um, good. That's more or less what I want to say about thermodynamics. Um, uh, any questions before... Before I give this over to Tim and the subject <coughs> changes a little bit. Yeah. Are there reversible routes that sum to zero, um, um, not simply because there's no heat absorption, but because there's some positive and some negative? Yeah, of course. Okay. Sure, sure. I mean, we, 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 sure, sure. Um, 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 I mean, First of all, any closed reversible route involving any absorption or any relinquishing is going to be an example of that. Any closed reversible route sums to zero. What's the closed? The, any, any reversible route that, that each step of which is reversible and that ends up in the same thermodynamic state that it started out. Right. Um. Those transitions are necessarily going to involve heat absorption. No, well, no, but if they do, okay. they'll, 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 but, but if they, maybe I'm not right. understanding your question. I guess I'm not understanding the, the initial where it gets in there initially. Where what gets in where initially? Heat absorption, um, a a process where you have both heat absorption and emission, and it just so happens to sum to zero. I mean, just in the yeah. Indian example, I'm unhappy with the This, is, this is what they were all like heat engines. These Carnot cycle engines, where right. you have uh, you have a temperature two two temperature reservoirs at different temperature, right? And the whole point was to make a, a a closed cycle, right? That would end up say, um, so you you end up in the very same state you began with, and in the process you absorb uh, you you absorb some uh, heat. From the higher temperature thing, you expel some heat into the lower temperature thing, right? Um, you do work. I'm not sure if this is what you were puzzled about. But at the end of the day, the total entropy right. range, of course, in that system is zero because it's a cycle. I mean, it has to be. It comes back to right. its initial it comes state. comes back to its initial state. Right, but that's, that's not a closed system. No, 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 but it doesn't matter. A system, a system that, a system that, uh, once again, once we know, okay, once we have this definition of entropy difference, okay, 
Once we know that, the, that, that over any two reversible routes between two thermodynamic states, we have the same, we have the same entropy difference, okay? Then we can associate entropy just with the thermodynamic parameters. Forget about the roots, okay? We pick some entropy, we pick some standard entropy zero state or, you know, entropy one. We pick some reference state. Then we, can, we associate an entropy with each state of that system, or with each equilibrium state of that system, depending on the, how that conversation comes out. With each state of that system, um, um, by, uh, uh, by calculating this dq over t over a reversible root. But once we've done that, we have an entropy assignment as a function of thermodynamic parameters, you know, as, as a function of pressure, volume, temperature, stuff like that, okay? So it doesn't matter if the system is isolated or not, okay? It comes back to its, it, it comes back to, you know, it, it, if that system itself, forget about the rest of the world, comes back to its initial thermodynamic state, then the entropy of that system hasn't changed. Okay. Yeah. I'm just referring to what you said before about non-equilibrium states in that picture. Yeah. It's it, that that sounded really appealing, but um, I guess it's I'm confused about one thing. If you have these irreversible paths, right? Um, is it like a irreversible path, not reversible? No, take take the reversible. Oh, the reversible path. Uh, is there a corollary from that that none of those can contain along them uh, a non-equilibrium point? I mean, that's yeah, I mean, part I of that definition. Essentially, so. a reversible path is in, as it were, quasi-equilibrium. Yeah, right. Right. My intuition. done very smart. My contrary, as it were, the state is always infinitesimally close to equilibrium. Now, it can, of course. Can't literally be an equilibrium. But the question is, the but deal is, but here's the contrary intuition, and it's a good question to sort this out. Okay, we deal with states like this. Okay, how do we deal with them? By breaking it up into two systems. Okay, we can imagine an equilibrium state of a system like this and an equilibrium state of a system like that. We calculate the changes in their entropy separately add them up, we get the total change in the entropy of this system, okay? So this system, here we've calculated the difference between a non-equilibrium, between a non-equilibrium state of the joint system, okay, and, uh, and, uh, and a final equilibrium state of the joint system. How did we do that? We broke it up into subsystems, which could be treated as being at equilibrium, okay, in the way Tim is saying. The question is, what are the limits of, a, of, a, of playing a game like that, okay? Um, um, does this give you a means to calculate the entropy difference between, say, any function of temperatures and pressures as a function of position within the gas or something like that, or are there, or, or are there limitations to that? That was the question. I guess, I guess neither of us at the moment knows the answer to that question. But you can certainly, this is a non-equilibrium non state of the larger system, okay? Um, it's certainly the case that you don't get any access to non-equilibrium states of the total system you're, you're considering. The question, of what are, the question is, what are the limits of playing a game like that? <coughs> yeah? So what you guys were arguing about before... We were discussing. So if you were in thermodynamics, you said we're treating the gas as like a like a single entity, 
It's not until you get to statistical mechanics that you right. get this collection of... Uh, we're, we're certainly, I don't even know what it means to treat it. We're certainly not thinking of it as collections of, of particulate elements. Well, I was thinking right. maybe, maybe that's, that's why you guys were having a debate like that, because you don't know how to treat, you don't know what, what you mean by entity, right? Thermodynamically. I don't think that was the problem. No, that's not the issue. Um, it, it, it's not, if we were just agnostic about, oh, right. all, all we needed was that we have systems to which there are these macroscopic parameters, right. temperatures, pressures, right. Okay, right. that they can be described in terms of. We're agnostic at this point about what those are. Right. Okay? Now, now some, some of those distributions of pressures and temperatures that we can describe are non-equilibrium distributions. Even, even treating it as just like a macroscopic object? I mean, yeah, yeah, take, take a, yeah, they're in fact, we, we don't have a deeper understanding of why they're non-equilibrium distributions, so, but they're in, uh, as an empirical fact, they're non-equilibrium distributions. Yeah, take a bar of metal like this, it won't stay like that. Yeah, take, take okay. a bar of metal that has, a, I mean, David's right. is a little right. easier because he can easily take two right. kind of equilibrium things right. and jam them together and get this. But right. take a bar of metal, a bar of iron, that's, that I heated up on one side. And it's in the process of equilibrating, but it now has a temperature gradient across it, right? It's hotter here, it's colder here, and, you know, as time goes on, that temperature gradient is going to change. If I take a point in the middle, right, mm -hmm. that's just not an equilibrium state. Yeah, but you can assign an, an, an entropy to that. Well, that's, that's what we were all, that's, that's what our discussion was about. You that's can certainly ascribe an entropy once we get into the statistical mechanical, right. the question is: Can it be solved in entropy by this purely? The question is: Is there a purely thermodynamic? Oh, I see. So what, what, wait, so, no, no, no. So, in some sense, the sense of her original remark is now emerging. Okay, that is what she said was: If we had a fuller microscopic ontology of what was going on, we might not. You know, um, 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 think it would get clearer how to proceed. Well, yeah, that might be true. You can't apply an entropy to certain macroscopic states because it's not in, 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 right. in some sense that's tied to our notion of what we mean by gas like as an entity, right? No, no, but I, I, see, I don't think that's right. The, the reason why we want to keep this separate is what what's going to be our job when we oh, get no, into physical mechanics? Let, let me just finish. Yeah. We have some body of, as it were, pure thermodynamics, which is what David has been expositing here. We want to somehow give an underpinning of that or an explanation of it or something in terms of a different set of concepts that have to do with these microscopic constituents and blah, blah, blah. Okay? Right. We want to be clear about what the target we're trying to recover is. Well, what I'm one, one, one view is that the, that, that the target entropy, the thermodynamic entropy is only is only described for is only defined for equilibrium states. Now it may be that when I'm done, my new concept, right, the concept that I as it will reduce it to has a broader range. But Tim or it might be that you think, no no, already engaged that are I can describe these entropies and I need to get that. Let me take one more stab at this. Right. To to get an arbitrary final state is hard. But why do you need one? It looks like we could get we we could cook up almost any initial state we want just by compartmentalizing. Okay. 
then we can calculate the entropy difference between that and, and a more equilibrated final state. But and we'll have an entropy value for that initial state. But you wanted to enter. Your initial state is your reference. State. No, no, no. Fine. I go from my reference state to some easy equilibrium states. Then I get from the easy states to the hard state. Okay. By starting with the hard state, going to the easy. But state, I, I don't I'm calculating the entropy I, difference. I'm not, I don't understand how you. My claim was it wasn't obvious to me there were reversible paths that had these as endpoints. Whether you think of it as the initial or the final endpoint is kind of because it's a reversible thing. Yeah, but then I don't get it. But then I don't get it. I, I suppose I have three temperatures instead of two. We can do that by the same trick. Okay? Suppose I have five temperatures. We can do it by the same trick. Uh, the, the, the it, it, yeah. it seems to me that I'm not understanding what you're saying. It seems to me that I'm in agreement with him when it comes to like if you if you can't assign entropy to some macroscopic um, thing, right? Then, well, you, you you need the entropy to calculate whether it's no, no. The the question is whether we okay. Let's we'll, we'll figure this out and, and report but, 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 and report but, but, but that's our findings been, to the That's been a clue that this thing you're looking at as like gas really cannot be explained by going further into microscopic constituents. I don't understand. So explain. I don't. That's the yeah, comment yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't think anything should have been obvious about what or what one can or cannot do. Well, I don't think you would. Be, I'm not saying it's obvious. I'm just saying maybe that should have been a hint. I mean, in other words, we're looking for some autonomous laws. One picture is we found some nice autonomous laws governing what? Governing equilibrium states, reversible. Um, you know, reversible processes and some irreversible processes between equilibrium states. But if someone says, but what about non-equilibrium states? Is that somehow covered by these autonomous laws? One possibility is saying, no, it just, I, you know, that, that's, that's not covered. It seems like it's not covered if you can't calculate entropy of certain that, states. That's right, and that's what we're having this discussion about. David thinks there's some way to get to any state that will bring it under the purview of these tools. Right. It's not obvious to me there is. Well, it seems, it seems... But wait, let's, let, let's, let's, we'll, we'll discuss this and, and report back. Um, um, any other questions about thermodynamics? Good. Tim. Okay. Um, well, let me do, let me, let me, let me do one thing I hadn't planned to do, but I'm just going to give you a puzzle. And when I say this puzzle, there's the puzzle I gave you before about finding the Stoss-Solons us, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. This is a real puzzle. This is a puzzle. You go to the experts, they don't agree about this. All right? So just to show you how close we are to a really deep, a really deep uh, uh, issue here. So take David's case here. We start with two uh, boxes of gas at different temperatures. We know it's a fact that if we bring them into thermal contact, the temperatures will equilibrate. And what he did was show that uh, that state where the temperatures have equilibrated is a higher entropy state. Right? And in fact, if you assume, in fact, you can show it's kind of the maximum entropy state. So if you assume that eventually this thing will, what the equilibrium state will be the maximum entropy state, you get that prediction. Yes? Everybody has? 
Now let's take the same case. I'm just. I just want to. Let me just. Let me ask a really quick question. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I shouldn't be. Okay. I know I'll regret this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Stop the thing halfway through the equilibration. Yes. Okay. Good. We've got a non-equilibrium. Yeah, we've got a non-equilibrium final state. Well, I'm not sure what you mean. If you, have you separated? No. I want to know. I want. I haven't separated them. Then how do I just, stop it? I, I don't stop it. I ask. <laughs> I ask. You know. I ask what the di entropy difference is between the initial state and the state halfway through. I can calculate that in the exact same way. Um, I mean, we're, again, I'm not. Okay, here's what we do. I, I uh, you know, I, I push this in less. I pull this out less. Okay, I calculate that the entropy is uh, uh, that the entropy of the of the final. You mean you're, all you're doing is changing these two numbers? I, you could look at it that way, but I can say I can perfectly well say this is you know the, the, I, I have a temperature difference. They haven't yet. I, I put them together for a certain finite amount of time. Okay. After which the temperature difference is less, but not zero. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting lost here. We all agree. If I have, if I separate these boxes at different temperatures, if I right. separate them, right, th this can be an equilibrium state. Right? Sure, just, it'll just sit there. Yeah, doing anything. Yes. Right. Yeah. Now, if all you're saying is, well, of course, then if I can as ascribe an entropy to that, I can then just put those in contact yeah. and ascribe it the same. But, that, but, but I can fun, play that trick with any non-equilibrium state. Yeah. I suddenly, I, I, I have some weird state where, where the temperatures and pressures yeah. are weird functions of position. I suddenly rip everything apart. I put little enclosures around everything. You, 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 I rip it apart. You can have a gas with yes. a variable with a continuously variable pressure. Right. Right. Yeah, you've got all these guys, you know, confined to little boxes right. at different pressures. Right. Now you suddenly take away your boxes. Right. You think if you suddenly put them back in, it'll be back, it'll be it'll be right back here? No. No. So it's not a no, 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 no. We're talking across. No, no, no. We're talking across purposes. We'll 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 resolve this. Okay. Thing. That's not. Well, seems to me that's not a reversible process. It ends up with that state anyway. Um. So. So here's here's another another little game you can play. Take our two boxes of gas. All right, we've got the ideal gas laws. I'm going to be talking about this. So everybody remembers for an ideal gas in equilibrium, it's got a pressure, a volume, and a temperature, and this this guy is going to be a constant depending on the number of particles in the gas. So it gives you this relation between pressure, volume. So take my two guys. T1 and T2. Now, what we know, as David said, is if we put them in thermal contact, heat's going heat's to flow from the warmer one to the cooler one until they equilibrate at some medium temperature, and then it'll stop, and that's the maximum state. But here's something else we can do. Not put them, don't put them in thermal contact. Okay? Don't put them in thermal contact. You're going to connect them, however, by an adiabatic piston. So adiabatic in this case means it just does not, doesn't conduct doesn't conduct heat, right? It's made out of styrofoam or something, right? Not made out of heat. So we've got this piston, and the piston is free to move, right? So it's no longer part of the description of, of the external constraints that the volumes of these are fixed. But start out in a situation where this has some pressure P1. Some volume V1, some temperature T1. This one starts out 
T2, V2, T2. We're assuming, say, that T2 is greater than T1. There are different temperatures. But let's arrange this, and you can do it, just so these two are equal. The two pressures are equal. The temperatures are different, the volumes are different, but the pressures are equal. You can, you can, you can solve this in a way to do that. Now, ask yourself what's going to happen. So here are two arguments. Argument one says nothing's going to happen. Why? Well, this is, a, this is a frictionless piston. It's free to move. But the pressure on the piston in this direction from this box of gas is by construction identical to the pressure on the piston in that direction from this box of gas. And we all know what happens to pistons that have no pressure, no, you know, the, the pressure's the same, it's just going to sit there. On the other hand, we have the following argument. There is going to be a higher entropy state of this system where the temperatures of equilibrium, where this piston has moved, the volumes have changed, right? If, if, if I move this piston, if this piston happens to move in this direction, it's going to do work on this system, and it's going to extract work from that system. It's going to be taking energy out of one and putting it in the other. So motion of this piston can actually tend to equilibrate the temperatures. So the first argument says, this thing ain't going to go anywhere. Right? You can leave it forever. This has to do with the definition of what you mean by the equilibrium state. I just gave you another argument which says, but wait a minute, if the equilibrium state is always the highest entropy state available consistent with the gross constraints, this thing is going to move. And you might ask how it's going to move. You might ask where it's going to end up. Now, this is a question. This is a nice old problem. And it's one that even the experts are still arguing about. This is to tell you, I don't, you know, I'm not saying go home and solve this one. This one, the experts are still arguing about. There's no general agreement about, about how to resolve this particular puzzle. What happens empirically? <laughs> you, you have to, so, empirically, you have to wait too long. Okay? So this is part of the point, this is actually where I want to begin. We talk about equilibrium states. I'm going to talk a lot about equilibrium in a minute. And you ask yourself, well, what do you mean by the equilibrium state? And you have this kind of rule of thumb. You say, take a system, isolate it, and wait long enough for whatever macroscopic features I'm monitoring to settle down. Well, what exactly does that mean? So suppose I have a box of hydrogen gas, okay, and I start off with some, you know, I, I inject it in, and the pressures are all fluctuating, and maybe there's a temperature gradient, and so on. And you say, well, now just wait a while. It'll settle into equilibrium, and the temperature will be constant, and the pressure will be constant, it'll have some value. But <coughs> if you think hard about it, you say, well, wait a minute, if I wait really long, this, this hydrogen is going to fuse eventually into helium. Right, that's energetically favorable. And if I wait long enough, the helium is going to fuse, and all this stuff, I mean, this is a point that David Wallace once made in a paper, if I wait long enough, this stuff's going to end up being, I don't know, lead or whatever, you know. But the time scale, when you say, why don't I just go in the lab and check what happens, right, the answer is because the time scales, right, so there, there are different 
if you if you define equilibrium in terms of wait a while and see if things settle down, but wait a while is important. And it can be very different if you literally mean wait forever, wait a day, right? There are different scales of equilibration and different scales on which we're going to look at this, okay? So, you know, this is part of, of, of trying to get exactly clear about what's going on. Um, and also what the explanatory principles are. So I'm just going to, that, that, this adiabatic, say, there's a whole, you know, you can look it up, there's a whole literature about this adiabatic piston problem that there's just no agreement about. Different people use different approximations, and they use different regimes for taking limits, and they get different motions of this piston. So, you know, there, there, there are puzzles even here. Now, what I, what, what I want to do is start to talk about trying to embed some of these laws, some of these thermodynamic laws that David's been talking about, into statistical mechanics. And so we want to, first of all, talk about equilibrium states. And then, you know, non-equilibrium. Now, this is really, again, very contentious. So there are some cases uh, uh, in physics where we could be expositing some physics and say, yeah, all the experts would pretty much agree. Right? For everything David just did in terms of classical thermodynamics, you're not going to you know, go into the physics department and get anybody object. But the status of non-equilibrium thermodynamics is very contentious. A lot of these things are very contentious. Um, but what I, let, let's just talk first about the simpler thing, which are equilibrium states. So what do I mean by an equilibrium state? Well, I just told you. I'm described, I, I start off and I describe the system by some macroscopic parameters. So temperature, pressure, and uh, I notice that if I isolate a system and wait, the values of these things can change. So, as I say, take a take an iron bar and heat it up. You know, apply a blowtorch to one side. So I now have a very high temperature. I have a temperature gradient. Suppose the temperature, I don't know, temperature starts out like that or something, um, very high on this side and very low on that side. And if I just then isolate it and let it do on its own, what we know what will happen is eventually this thing will equilibrate to a constant temperature profile across it. And when it gets to the constant temperature profile, that's where it'll stay within the time scales that I'm looking at it. So that counts as the equilibrium state, state where the macroscopic parameters are not changing anymore. Now, what we know is that what we want to do is take this macroscopic set of, of descriptors, like temperature and so on, and we want to give microscopic microscopic definitions. And in some cases, this is pretty easy. So, for example, we have the descriptor here of pressure for a gas. I'm just going to be really talking about ideal gas laws for the moment. 
And now we say, well, what is that? Macroscopic, what is that feature that I'm measuring? And you say, well, if the thing is really a bunch of atoms bouncing around and colliding with the walls of my container, then there's a momentum transfer, right? When, 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 when this particle whose momentum is, is going that way collides with the top and gets its momentum shifted, right, turned around in this direction, there's a momentum transfer. And depending on the number of collisions and how fast the particles are going, you'll get a net momentum transfer. And then you say, ah, well, what the pressure is, is just that, right? And famously, the temperature, well, that's something like the mean kinetic energy, so that's going to be you know, proportional to the mean value of one-half mv squared for my particles that are moving around. And so, when the temp as the temperature shifts, what I'm looking for is this. Bear in mind here that we have evidence on the purely thermodynamic level that temperature is a measure of internal energy. If it, Now that we have a particulate model of what a gas is, the only kind of energy it could be is kinetic energy of the motions of the particle. And, you know, from this basic model, so early on when people start to have this model of a gas, you immediately get some results. David talks about some of these in his book. So we notice, right, you can notice if I push on this box of gas, if I make this a piston and push it and reduce the volume, a couple things happens. The pressure goes up and the temperature goes up. Okay? <laughs> and again, if I do it slowly enough at all times, it's still, it's still going to satisfy my ideal gas law, P equals MR, MRT. But then again, why does that happen? Well, from this model, it's kind of clear. First of all, why does the temperature go up? Well, if I'm pushing this down and I ask, now, if, 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 if this particle just collides with a static wall and bounces off elastically, the energy with which it comes off is the same as the energy with which it went in. If the wall is moving down, it's easy to see that the energy with which it comes off is higher than the energy with which it went in. How is it easy to see that? Well, as David says, just go into the frame of reference of the moving wall. In the, in the frame of reference of the moving wall that is going to its rest frame, the particle will go out with the same energy that it came in. But if you have the same velocity relative to the moving wall, when the, move, the wall is moving downward, it means that relative to the box of gas, you're coming off with a higher velocity. Okay? And you imagine that has to be true. I'm doing work. When I push down on this thing, work is energy. The energy has to be getting into my system somehow. You can sort of see why it would end up making my particles go faster. That's going to raise their temperature. Or let's take, a, let's take even a simpler example. So let's suppose we fix the temperature. We put this whole box of gas again in, 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 in contact with a big heat reservoir at temperature T, its initial temperature. So as I push down and I increase, as I decrease the volume, I manage to keep T constant. Well, if T is constant, then if I decrease the volume by a half, I have to increase the pressure by two. Right? Why should that happen? Well, again, intuitively, if I keep the temperature constant, the, after I've done this, the, they're still moving at the same speed. 
but it's kind of easy to see that each particle, as it's bouncing around, will be hitting this top guy, for example, twice as often. Right? And if he's hitting it twice as often, then the, then the momentum transfer will be twice as big, so you'd expect the pressure to go up. I mean, that's you know, a very quick kind of argument. Now, Suppose we want to do this. Well, what we what we want to do is first of all understand, in the case of equilibrium, what exactly is the microscop what are the microscopic definitions, but then also what is the microscopic description of my gas associated with a macroscope? Okay? What is what is it in equilibrium? So we're gonna ask two questions. Question one is, what is the equilibrium <coughs> uh, description? And then we're going to ask, why should the system, this is the you know, big question, why should the system tend to equilibrium? This is the one that we're going to be spending a lot of time on. But first, we have to answer this. What, what is it that we're tending to? Okay? Now, I want to deal with this in the, in the case that, that Boltzmann and Maxwell started to deal with. So, we, so we're, we're going from very kind of abstract thermodynamics now to very particular discussion of a single exact system. The system is a monoatomic gas. So it's a gas, and furthermore, they're just individual, right? The atoms are individual atoms. They're not molecules. You can think of them like hard or elastic spheres. Why is that important? Well, if I have a molecule, say, and I sort of model my molecule like that, and I imagine this thing is moving and it has some energy of motion, some kinetic energy, this guy can have a lot of different kinds of ways it can be moving. So it can be spinning around an axis like that. It might, if, it, if we think of this as being connected by a spring, it can be vibrating like this. Okay? So you have other accounts into which energy can be put. If I put some energy into the system and I say that energy had to go into my into my molecules, some of it will go into the gross motion of this system, right? This big V. Some of it will go into making it spin, some of it will go into making it vibrate. That's a complicated problem. So what we're going to do is model our gas initially as just single atoms. The all of their kinetic energy is just in their velocity through one half mv squared, right? They've got a mass, and you've got one half mv squared. Okay. So yeah. Can they still be spinning? Uh, the 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 normal the way they treated it, the way Boltzmann and, and, and Maxwell treated it, is essentially they treat them as point particles. So they're centers of force. And therefore, there's no angular momentum. Moment, moment. 
I mean, you'd have to be worried about, you know, if they were really balls, then you would have to be worried about that as well. So if, if you want, you can just say, we're going to simplify things by imagining a system that only has that, that internal degree of freedom, if you will, to, to eat up energy. Okay? Now, I have a box of gas, and I let it come to equilibrium. At equilibrium, it will satisfy this law. And I know that a complete description of it microscopically would give me the exact positions and momenta of every single atom, and I know I can't, I don't even want that. That's not really what I'm after. I just want a statistical description of the distribution of these atoms and their velocities. Now, what Boltzmann and Maxwell do is they start with the simplest case. So just imagine a box of gas. And, and again, all of this is a little too. So you imagine just a box of gas. You let it come to equilibrium. And they, they, we now want a description of how the positions and velocities are distributed among the particles in this gas. And they start off by saying, well, it's obvious that the positions, the densities, will just be uniform. Okay? So they'll be, if I take any little, if, if I take any little, you know, unit, cubic unit of volume anywhere in this gas, they'll be essentially the same number of atoms everywhere. Okay? So I just have a flat density in position distribution. Now, already, I'll, again, I'll just mention this, because you know, you have to, I, concrete examples in your head, they're interesting puzzles. That's, of course, this is already ignoring some stuff. You might say, but what about gravity, right? I've got a box of gas on the table. There's gravity. Maybe it should be a little denser at the bottom than at the top, right? And if instead of a box like that, I think of a column of air starting here and going all the way up into outer space, you think, wait, no. Even if it's in equilibrium, the density will not be constant. Similarly, they, they just say, well, for a small box of gas, it's obvious that the equilibrium temperature thing is uniform. Right? So if I, if I stick a, a thermometer anywhere in this gas, it should register the same. You again might ask yourself, because this is an even inter more interesting question. This is a really interesting question. Take a big column of gas in a gravitational field is the temperature, and let it come to equilibrium, should the temperature be constant from bottom to top? Should the Maybe the temperature goes down as you go up? Maybe the temperature goes up as you go up? Okay? Try and think of an argument. You can actually try and think of one of David's arguments in terms of heat engines, right? Can you figure out what the temperature distribution of a big column of gas in a, you know, in a gravitational field ought to be? This is also something that's not obvious. But, we're leaving that aside. We're assuming it's obvious <coughs> that at equilibrium, the positions are evenly spread throughout this. And the other thing, so what about, so the other thing we need are the momenta, which amounts to asking for the velocities. What does the distribution of velocities look like? Now again, Boltzmann and so on, just to make things simple, they all said, well, clearly at equilibrium, <coughs> it has to be isotropic. So, it, the, the distribution of velocities in any one direction ought to look the same as the distribution of velocities in any other direction. Right. I, I shouldn't notice that somehow there are more particles 
on average going down than going up or going this way than going that way. And if you, have, you know, they would just say that that we're not worried about. But we have this last piece of data. What about the velocity distribution? If I start counting up or, or, or measuring the velocities of all these particles, how will they be distributed? Okay. Now, it should not occur to you that there's any obvious answer to this. Whereas you might say, it must be that spatially it's a uniform distribution. It must be that whatever the velocity distribution is, it should be independent of direction. It shouldn't be obvious to you at all what the velocity distribution should be at equilibrium. Does it, I mean, does it, is there anything? Well, I, I should ask you: Is there anything about this that somebody thinks, "Yeah, it's obvious," right? Because then you can say, and then I'll, I'll try and tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, might it not be obvious that it, it's going to be normally distributed because the uh, it's it's going to be the result of lots of uh, sort of random collisions, and uh, they'll they'll whatever their distribution, it'll it'll come to something like a normal distribution. Well, what, uh, well, what's? I mean, first of all, you would have to since you brought it up. You have to describe what you mean by a normal distribution, and then you have to explain why you think it's obvious. That's Just by the central limit theorem. Um, when when I say yeah. describe what you mean, so let's... <laughs> well, those words won't convey, right? So tell me what you mean by a normal distribution. Okay, it's, it's a, it's a half-baked intuition that if the, if the uh, momentum of a particle is the result of collisions with lots of other particles that are distributed according to, in, in some way by the central limit theorem, uh, uh, might not the the distribution of momentum, you know, after a while, each particle follow a normal distribution. I mean, I see. You see, I, uh, I should withdraw this point. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 if there's something obvious about it, and mostly I mean, so, so let me just say, when I when I ask for this, and you have to be really careful about this. I, I, when, um, I'm going to. What Maxwell and Boltzmann wanted was really a, 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 an exact equation describing the distribution. And when I say that, you also have to be a little bit careful about what it's an equation for. If you start reading the literature, you'll find, uh, you'll see different equations, okay? That's why if you say, well, can't I just use the central limit theorem? You might, you know, you might say, well, how can I be getting all these different The answer is, you're seeing different equations because they're equations for different things. So, equations for what? Well, I might want, for example, the distribution of momentum in a direction. Okay? So, pick the x direction, call it that. Every one of these particles will have some momentum. I mean, it could be zero. It could be negative. They'll have some momentum in the x direction. There'll be some distribution of those momenta. Okay, I might want to know what that looks like. Now, what the what the isotropy assumption is is that whatever the distribution of momentum in the x is in the x direction, it ought to look the same in the y direction or the z direction or any other direction I pick. You could ask for the distribution of momenta. So now, instead of asking in a direction, I'm now going to say, well. What what does the distribution look like? You know, in this way, I, I specify I have to specify a direction to be anywhere. I can look for the distribution of the speed 
okay, where the speed is, of course, the square root of the square of the velocity. Right. Actually, what, what, what I'm going to talk about is this formula. I can ask for the distribution of the energy. And the energy of each particle, of course, goes as v squared. So that's going to be... Now, all of these are interderivable, right? Anyway, answers are given to all of these, and they're easily related to one another. The point is, the actual equation you see on the page looks different. Right, so when you, we, if you ask for the, the, the distribution of this, there's a v squared. There's a v squared that shows up in this equation that doesn't show up in this equation. This is just to warn you. If you start reading the literature and you find people are trying to derive a distribution, start out by asking yourself a distribution of what? Okay, because if you're not really clear what's being distributed, you might find that the equation you see on this page looks different from the equation on that page. All right. So what should these things look like? Well, and how do we get to that answer? Now, there are a bunch of different ways, conceptually different ways, to arrive at this thing that's called the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. All right, so this is what we're trying to get to. And they, the, the considerations just look very different. You know, one thing you have to become aware is that in, in thermodynamics, often there are lots of different ways of approaching, the, approaching something that will give you the same answer or within epsilon the same answer, different ways of defining things. Right? And then you have to sort of think through, well, which is, the right, which is the right one? Which is the one that's really getting at the thing in the right way? Uh, so they're what we might call structural slash symmetry arguments. Okay? There's what we might call random distribution. I'll say what I mean by that. Arguments. And then there's what we'll call dynamics plus arguments. Okay? These are th these are the ones that are deep. These are the ones that will, will hopefully have the additional advantage of not only telling you what the equilibrium distribution is, but why systems should tend to it. Right, so if I ask the question, why should a system left on its own reliably come to equilibrium, clearly somewhere in there I'd better be talking about the microdynamics. Okay? This argument, for example, this first one that I'll give you, the first one that, Bolt, that uh, Maxwell came up with, doesn't have any dynamics in it. Okay? It doesn't have any. So, in a way, whatever it is, it's going to be very hard to see how it could motivate an understanding or underlie an understanding of why it is you should expect to see this distribution. Okay? Similarly, for this, there's a kind of fictive story you tell, which is not physical. 
which leads you to the distribution. But you might wonder, okay, but that's a fictive story. So let me just talk about these three roots. Um, so first, the first one. So this was in 1860. There's a paper by Maxwell. Um, it's called the dynamical theory of gas, illustrations of the dynamical theory of gases. I didn't put I didn't put this on because this is not the argument we want to worry about. But it's 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 an argument. He was he wanted to know what does this distribution look like. Now, what do I mean by what does the distribution look like? You might say, well, why don't, why don't you think this? We know that my gas is at some temperature t. We've decided that temperature is a measure of the mean uh, kinetic energy of the particles. So given the temperature, there's a mean velocity of the particles, an average velocity of the part or average velocity squared of the particles. So here's something you could do. You could say, well, why not just assume that all the particles have that velocity? Okay? Isotropically distributed. So they're all going, there is this thing, this, this mean velocity, they're all going that speed in different directions. Okay, so if I, you know, if here's my velocities, here's all the possible velocities from zero up to infinity in principle that my particles can have, and what that distribution looks like, you know, would look like this, right? It would say there's some v, this is this average v, and essentially all of my particles have that speed, and they're just going, you know, in uniform, in, in uniformly distributed in all different directions. Well, that would give me the right temperature, and it certainly satisfies the isotropy, right? You want this kind of symmetry of all directions. The directions would all be the same. But, you know, I, what do you do at this point? Well, you close your eyes and you say, wait a minute, I've got this box, and it's got all these, you know, ping pong balls that are bouncing around and banging into each other. Doesn't seem quite right that it would sort of somehow manage to to come to equilibrium with all of them going. You know, aren't they going to somehow be distributed in their speeds? Well, what Maxwell does in 1860s, he says this distribution fails to have yet another structural property. I think the right distribution ought to have. And that structural property is that the velocity of a particle in any one direction should give me no information at all about its velocity in an orthogonal direction at right angles. Okay? So knowing how fast a particle is going this way should tell me exactly nothing about how fast it's going this way. Now, somebody should tell me, why would this velocity distribution fail to have that consequence? Give them all the same. Yeah. If you do the velocity in two orthogonal directions, you decide the velocity in four orthogonal directions, you know the total. Right. Another way to put it is, if all of them have the same velocity v, then if I know that this guy's going at v in the x direction, I know it's going at zero in the y and z directions. Right? Or, as you say, if I know in any two directions, I can actually derive what it must be in the third orthogonal direction to give me the right total velocity. 
Okay? So this velocity distribution law fails to show, to have this feature, which is a kind of independence, statistical independence, of the <laughs> velocity, distribu uh, uh, velocity distribution in the x direction to the y direction. So think of it that way, right? I, what I want is that finding out the velocity in the x direction gives me no information about its velocity in any orthogonal direction. Now, what Maxwell did in this paper is he said, that, looks, that, that seems right to me. I mean, he says a little more than that, but not much more. And later on, in his later papers, when he's doing this, he says, the argument of this earlier paper was precarious. And that's what he means. He says, okay, it's, you know, I can derive that this structural constraint on the velocity distribution will give me a velocity distribution, but it's hard to see why I should expect that structural constraint to be satisfied. And if you want to be really sticky about it, I don't really want to be quite this sticky about it. You could even convince yourself that in full generality, the independence constraint can't really be satisfied. Why not? Well, because we've got this box of gas, and it has a fixed temperature. It means it's got a fixed energy in it. Now, suppose I notice there's one single particle in this gas at a very, going at a very high velocity, so high it has absorbed all of the energy of the system. Okay, this is not, you're not going to ever see this, but in principle, having noticed that, you would then know what its velocity in every other direction. In fact, you know the velocity of every other particle of gas. All the rest of them have to be zero. Okay, but that's a subtlety we're not going to worry about. Okay. So we demand this. We demand this independence. And from that, and I'm not going to try and go through the mathematics because there's no point. You, know, you just have to, you, you can see that that's a fairly strong constraint. And from that constraint, he derives this distribution. There's F, F of V, this is again the speed, so I'm going to do it for the speed. Uh, the what, what the distribution is going to do is give me one of these graphs. Okay, so here's my mean velocity, here's my, the, the average velocity that gives me the temperature, and the, the, the general form of this is that there's a constant times v squared e to the minus another constant v, v squared. Okay, that's, this is the general form of it. Right, so you ask yourself what kind of, now there are some, there are some three parameters here, the a and the b, but generally what kind of distribution will have this feature, and what you can prove mathematically is it's going to look like that. Now, what does this look like? Well, as v goes to zero, because of this v squared term here, it goes to zero. And as v gets very, very large, you've got this uh, exponential damping term. Right? So one way to think about this equation is when v is very close to zero, this term is very close to 1, and so it looks a bit like v squared. But when v is very large, this exponential, you know, which is, which is doing that, is going to dominate. And when you put those two guys together, 
uh, you get something that looks sort of like this. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll move this over closer here so it's more obvious the asymmetry around here. So let's put our average V here. Something sort of like that. Okay. So you have this distribution that's zero here that tails off to zero this way that has a maximum and the maximum happens to occur at this mean velocity that you get out of the temperature. Okay? And so that's the Maxwell-Holmesman distribution for speeds. As I say, if you read Maxwell in the later paper that I gave you, he gives you this, but not for speeds. He gives it you for energies. Okay, and the energies are like the speed square. And if you and elsewhere, he'll give it to you for the uh, for the momentum in a direction. And then that looks like the v, the, this 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 piece goes away. Sometimes you don't see the v squared piece. It's just I just don't want people to get confused. Okay. Good. So now you say, well, fine. Uh, if I demand that the equilibrium distribution has this particular <coughs> structural symmetry, then I can see that it's got to be like this. This this B, by the way, is you know proportional to one over the temperature. This factor. You know, you have you you can then fix these and get different. You know, you get ones that look sort of more like that and. Like some that look more like that by fixing my A's and B's and different things, and these are, these are going to depend on the temperature of the gas and other details about the gas. Okay? Fine. Why should I expect that if I leave a box, so the idea is that if I start off my box of gas with some other velocity distribution, right? If I start it off, and who knows, I can start it off however I like. You know, I, 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 I fill the box of gas by uh, attaching a very high pressure jet and push the gas in. And as soon as I do that, you know, you've got all these eddies and these currents and these whirlpools and the distribution of velocities is very uneven and so on. And then I wait and it settles down and it settles down into equilibrium. And what they're saying is it's going to settle down to that. Now the question is, it doesn't do much good just to say, but gee, this is the distribution that satisfies this nice independence condition, right? Because you might say, okay, but why, you know, why should I expect that this thing will evolve to satisfy my that, that that particular condition? Okay. Now here's another kind of way one could go about this. I I think this is right. I, I'm I'm not going to swear on a stack of um, of scars that this is right. But I think this is right. I asked Shelley. He didn't, he didn't give me an answer. Uh, play the following game. I have my box of gas with n particles in it. And I have an energy budget, right? a total amount of energy that's going to be fixed in the end by the temperature of the thing. And Imagine that I divide this energy into small little discrete quanta, right? Small little packets of energy. Very finely. Lots and lots. Of, many, many, many more packets of energy than there are numbers of, of, of particles. And then I just start to randomly distribute them. By randomly, I mean each little packet 
has exactly the same chance of being handed okay, to any of the atoms. And I hand them out that way. Now, we all know that at the end of the day, there'll be some lucky atoms that will get lots of packets of energy. Right? There'll be some unlucky atoms that didn't get many packets of energy. And we more or less know how to calculate the probabilities for that distribution. Right? So this, again, will have to do with normal distributions and central limit theorem. Okay? So what would you expect if you did that? Well, you first of all expect that, again, there will be some velocity profile here. It's not that everybody's going to get the same amount. Of, remember, once, I, once, I've decide, once I've determined how much energy I've given to a particle at the end, then I've fixed its, its speed. Right? So that distribution of energy will imply a distribution of speed. What do you expect? Well, you, you sort of know what these you know, the, the bell curve kind of distribution, I mean, binomial distributions look like, you expect there'll be a kind of average amount of energy that most of the particles got, <coughs> and smaller numbers that were, as it were, lucky in one direction that got lots more energy, and other smaller numbers that were unlucky and got very little energy. Okay? And how I get that distribution is just more or less by a counting argument, right? I, I, I look at all the ways of distributing these little packets among my particles. And I'll notice, for example, that there are many, 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 many more ways of, dist of, of, of distributing them that lead to certain velocity distributions. So here's the extreme case. One way that it could happen is that just by chance, because again, every one of these packets of energy is being given out by chance, just by chance they all go to the same guy. Right? So my velocity distribution is everybody zero, except for this one guy way, way, way out here, right, who has this tremendously high velocity, right, who's carrying all the energy of my system. Well, that could happen. But there's only one way for that to happen, or there, you know, there are n different ways for each particle for that to happen. On the other hand, you know, there are many, many, many ways that I can distribute this energy so that it gets a more even distribution. Right? Again, I'm not going to go through. So there are these counting arguments, these sort of combinatorics arguments. Now, that will also lead me to some expected distribution. And I believe it's this distribution if you do it with the energy packet. Is that right, David? I mean, I, that, that, that's the way I'm used to deriving the Mechanical right. Boston distribution. Okay. Not, not by the 1860 yeah. way. Okay. Right. So here's the claim which I'm pretty confident in. This is just a mathematical question. I believe that, that, that distributing the energy in that kind of way will lead me, you know, take the limit as the packets get smaller and give them out randomly, but it will lead you to the same Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, this guy this guy. Okay? Now again, that's an interesting fact. And if you thought that there was an energy fairy in my system that was distributing energy randomly, right, you'd say, ah, that explains why you should expect to end up in this distribution. But of course you don't think that. Right? You don't think there's any such energy fairy. You think that 
if I start off outside of this distribution and it tends to it tends to always want to come back to it, what's doing the job of redistributing the energy are interactions among the particles, right? Or blindly among the particles. No, nothing that looks like randomly distributing this or that to the particles. Okay? So again, another way to get to the distribution, but how you connect this to an account of why you should tend to equilibrium is not entirely obvious. Right? What we want to do is see why the dynamics of these interacting particles should tend to take us to that. Yeah. But Boxes of gas is what you're going to use. I mean, um, I, I just—it's like, well, what, what's the advantage of doing this like very classical distribution as opposed to? Because these classical guys were the guys who invented statistical mechanics. No, I mean, like, historically, I, I understand, but like, but, but, but what, what's the advantage in understanding the connection between, like, as a lecture on the first day of like, of, like the problems of reconciling, um, like, macroscopic physics versus microscopic physics? Um, Look, I, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm a bit. I'm completely at a loss as to what your worry is. Um, the classical people were trying to solve this problem and come up with an underlying dynamical argument to this distribution. Okay, and they did the work on it. It's mathematically the easiest one to think about. It's physically the easiest one to think about. Right? It's simple. Well, that's why we're doing monatomic gases. Why? Why? Why are you? You might as well ask why aren't I doing diatomic gases? The answer is just a hell of a lot more complicated. What we want to do is look at the simplest, the case least cluttered up by other technical considerations to get our hands on the nature of statistical explanation. Oh, so uh, so are you saying like the same philosophical answers and questions that you could apply to the Maxwell's distribution would apply in the exact same way? I guess like you know with certain changes. That is that like, is yeah. the assumption. Right? I mean, it depends what you mean yeah. by exact, but but in a, in a in a relevant uh, right. they're going to they're relevantly similar ones are going to come up for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess that's what I was concerned with. Is that I was wondering perhaps like there'd be perhaps a completely different scenario. No. If, uh, well, let me put it this way. If it is, that's a first-order important right. discovery, that, and you only understand how important it is by having done the classical case. Okay? That if you have a bunch of tools of doing statistical mechanics, they were developed in this venue for these problems. Those tools are often taken over mathematically into quantum statistical mechanics, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Now, either that's because at some deep level, the explanatory situation is the same, and that's okay. Or somehow, going to quantum mechanics has completely changed the situation in a fundamental way, in which case, what people are doing is wrong. Because this is how these things were originally justified. So, you know, step by step, 
We're doing the simple case because we can think about it clearly. Tim. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. The, the, so I, I guess I want to ask a strategy that's intermediate about a strategy that seems to me intermediate between two and three. Okay. Okay. Um, that is, three is the kind of thing we're going to see in these Maxwell and Boltzmann papers. You pay detailed attention to the laws of collision, so on and so forth. But suppose you have in place something like two. Okay. There's just a lot more ways to distribute the energy right. this way than any other way. And you don't know much about the dynamics, okay? But you say to yourself, the dynamics is really complicated, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the dynamics probably, you know, you know, um, um, exactly what the thing is going to do might depend quite sensitively on what the exact initial micro conditions are, so on and so forth. Suppose I don't know <coughs> the exact initial micro conditions. Mm -hmm. I know that the dynamics are complicated, and, and, I, and to the extent that I can think it through in detail, I see how differently things might go depending on microscopic differences in initial conditions, so on and so forth. So I say to myself, what am I going to do? Okay, I can't solve the equations exactly. For certain simple cases, I can, or, or I can come close to that, and that's what Maxwell and Boltzmann are going to do. But in general, I can't, blah, blah, blah. I say to myself, what should I do? I can give up altogether. Mm -hmm. Or I can say, uh, well, I don't know, maybe a first reasonable guess is to model what the dynamics is going to do as some kind of random walk through the available set of states or something like that. Okay? It's going to wander around among the accessible states at random. Good. If I do that, if I make an assumption like that, so that's bringing the dynamics in in some minimal way, okay? It's not completely independent of the dynamics. Then I combine it with this. I say, oh, I begin to see, uh, I, in a way that's defeasible, in a way that might turn out not to be true, once I know more about the dynamics and so on. But given what I can guess at the moment, I can begin to see why the thing is going to wander towards equilibrium and then settle there. Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, we've had a discussion about, we've had a discussion right, about that. Right, right. Um, let me, that is, one doesn't want to claim more for this argument than one should, okay? If I, if right. I can solve the equation of motion, of course that's what I want to do. Right, I mean, there, there has to be a little bit more of it than goes in. Uh, um, uh, I mean, it, it, it to give the argument you're trying to give would, first of all, require uh, more work than the, than the than the suggestion than it wears on its sleeve. Uh. Okay. What do I mean by that? Um, so let's. Everybody remembers the distribution we're going after, I guess. Oh. Now we're not going to get it. Um, <laughs> Um, all right. Let me say this, and then I'm sorry we're out of time. Actually, let me ask just before I share. So I asked you, I've been asking you from the beginning to look through these papers of Boltzmann and Maxwell and try and find the Stoßsaal Ansatz. Has anybody been doing that? Did anybody find anything? All right. Uh, I'll give you another. I, I did. Um, uh, uh, 
but trying to do it, you know, it's it. So here's here's the clue. There's a lot of equations. You mostly have to, you know, don't worry about working through the detailed mathematics. Look for the look for the conceptual moves, right? I mean, if you think you, to, to read Maxwell or Boltzmann, you have to verify every equation and so on. You'll never get there. You won't do it. You'll give up. You don't, you know, kind of skip, do what I do. Skip all the skip all the mathematics. Look at the pros. Right? Figure they didn't make a mathematical mistake. And look for the conceptual point. Right? Look for where's the justification for setting up the problem this way. Right? And that's really practical. Right? That's really practical. Even, you know, you don't have to worry. Okay. So, what, what David is, is alluding to. So let, let me just say this. Okay. So, we have phase space. which we know what that is, right? So every point in phase space represents a complete micro-description of our system. And the system's under certain constraints. For example, in the case of our box of gas, it may be the volume uh, or so on, but the temperature, say the temperature is fixed, which means the total energy of the system is fixed. So there's going to be a, a subspace called an energy hypersurface, in phase space, which is, as it were, the, all the possible microstates accessible given the external constraints. Right? And right now we're just sort of assuming it's basically the energy that's our main constraint. So whatever my, whatever my system is doing, it's wandering around on this energy hypersurface. Now, but is that the conservation of energy amounts to the claim here that the trajectory doesn't right. wander off the, the energy hypersurface that it starts in. Right. Um, now, given any of these microstates, and given the right definitions of my macroscopic variables in terms of the microvariables, I get a macroscopic description. So obviously, for example, given any one of these points, there'll be a velocity distribution, the kind of thing I'm looking for. Or there'll be a temperature, or there'll be you know a pressure, or whatever, a pressure distribution, a density will be determined by these micro-conditions. And so one thing you could do is just ask yourself, okay, let's take this Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution and let's, as it were, paint in green all the dots that satisfy it. Okay? And so this is part of what David has in mind. That when you do that, what you find is this ooh, goddamn thing almost is entirely green. <laughs> okay? So this is, a, this is not, again, I haven't said anything about dynamics. All I've used was a connection between the micro-condition and the macro-condition. Um, and then there are these other, these other little, you know, highways and little, little places, uh, uh, extraordinary places where it's not and then David's idea is, look, suppose somehow or other I start in one of these odd little places where it's not green. And I haven't said a word about the dynamics, but suppose I just say, as he says, I'm a drunken, you know, the guy's drunk. It's a, it's a random walk. He's just going to head off in some random direction in phase space, okay, and wander around and stagger. And the idea is, so damn much of this is the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, that no matter what the dynamics are, he'll wander into there. 
Okay? And, and it'll be a and, long time And once he gets in there, right. blindly staggering around, right. he'll stay there for a hell of a long time. Right. Okay? Now, uh, why is it that I'm reluctant? So David and I have been having this argument for a long time. Why, why is it that I'm a little bit reluctant to want to think about things this way? Well, often, sometimes you read in the literature and people will say, this kind of argument tells you that if you start out of equilibrium, pretty soon you should be in equilibrium. I mean, you just, just, just take a random step in a few, you know, in a random step in almost any direction, you'll be in equilibrium. Why don't I like that? I don't like that because we're not in equilibrium. In the entire history of the universe, the universe has never been in equilibrium. And I hope to God the universe will not be in equilibrium when I get up out of bed tomorrow. Okay? It would be no, very you won't get up out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Um, we live in a non-equilibrium world and one in which we think there are very interesting things to say about how it is approaching equilibrium in very systematic, reliable, predictable ways at certain time rates, there are relaxation times, and so on. It's not clear to me, right, how this quick argument, the drunk walk argument, will get me a handle on any of that. You first of all have to worry not just that there are a lot, that most of this is equilibrium, but what's the exact distribution of the non-equilibrium states how is it that one step from this non-equilibrium I mean, won't take me straight into equilibrium, but will take me into nearby things? So there's a lot of, as it were, topological detail of this. Right. There are issues about times, you know, right. that it would take to do that, and right. so on. Right. And it, I don't see how to get a handle on those. Well, you can see how to get a handle on, on no, no, this. No. You can see, you know, just as just as you have an argument about uh, uh, about what what takes up most of the space here. Yeah. Refinements of arguments like that are going to tell you a little more about the topology of the non-equilibrium states down here. I mean, I don't think there's a basic disagreement here. Nobody is disputing that if we have an argument from a from a solution to the dynamical equation of motion, we don't want we don't need anything else. Okay, we don't need to appeal to anything else. The question is, as you say, the number of systems for which we think we have you know, good arguments of this kind is fairly limited. Right. We want to generalize these intuitions. The question is, are we simply being misled by arguments like this? Or are arguments like this contributing to our understanding of the generality right. of phenomena? So, let me make one more comment about this, and I guess we'll just have to start taking this up again next time. The other comment, and this will be familiar, more familiar, you know, yeah, in philosophy, probably physicists don't think about it so much, is that, of course, when I, when I draw these green points, and I say all these green points, those are points where the Maxwell distribution, velocity distribution holds. And look, it's, it's almost everywhere. Of course, what you think is, well, what I need to make that last claim is a measure over this phase space. Right? I, I need some way to talk about how big a region it is. And <clears throat> there is a natural measure. Now, if you're a philosopher, you start to worry about where does this measure come from? How do I justify the measure? Why should I believe it? There is a natural measure. We already ran across it. It was the one when David talked about Louisville's theorem. 
That's the measure that is preserved under the dynamics. Okay? Now, you see there's a funny kind of tension, conceptual tension, in what I just said. That is, if I say, look, the right measure to use to judge that this is overwhelmingly most of the phase space is the natural measure. And the natural measure is justified as natural because it's conserved by the dynamics. That's what Louisville's theorem tells me. There are lots of measures I could put on this that would not be conserved by the dynamics. Right? So I take a, I take a, a region with some measure in some other measure, and I let it evolve in time, and it will evolve to something maybe smaller or bigger. Okay? If I'm appealing to the dynamics to justify the measure, then David's idea that, look, the dynamics kind of drops out. Use any dynamics you want. Just randomly walk around. If you ask, well, what, what will be preserved under randomly walk around? Well, God knows. I mean, now you have to be very specific. Yeah, but Tim, this is, this is, okay, we'll, we'll, maybe yeah. we'll have, we'll talk about this for ten minutes in the beginning of next time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it seems to me you're ignoring what the natural next step in the refinement of such an argument would look like. Uh, uh, but we'll, let, let's okay. talk about it. So, uh, all right. So at least I hope we got this far, right? So we understand we have the description just in the case of this of this Maxwell-Boltzmann velocity distribution. We have the description. We're still wondering why should the system tend to equilibrium? And in the back of your mind, bear in mind that this claim that it tends to equilibrium that's a time asymmetric claim, right? It tends to equilibrium in the forward direction of time not in the back of the direction of time. So what we started out on the first day, we said, now there's going to be a puzzle, which is that if I'm going to, if I'm going to somehow found this in the dynamics, and the dynamics is time reversible, how could there possibly be a way of founding that, a, a, a time irreversible explanandum here, and you say, well, this is dynamics plus, it better be somewhere in the plus, right? It better be in the extra conditions that we put on the dynamics to do this analysis that the time asymmetry comes in. So this is this is our, our immediate target is to figure out, you know, what is the extra assumption that goes into these arguments that Maxwell and Boltzmann give, ultimately, you know, the, the, in the later Boltzmann paper, um, that allows you to derive this from this, okay? And that is the Stoßsalonsatz, and that's the thing you should be trying trying to run down in the papers if you can, okay?